0: You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Scripture reading this afternoon comes from Romans chapter 6 verses 1 through 14. This will form a background for us or context for us when we read uh, Romans 12. Because in Romans 6, the apostle Paul describes for us what it's like to offer your hands as living sacrifices and to d- dedicate the works of your hands to acts of righteousness. Let's read Romans chapter 6, the verses 1 through 14. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning that so that grace may increase? By no means. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who are baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? You are therefore buried with Him through baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. If we have been united with Him like this in His death, we will certainly also be united with Him in His resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with Him so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we also will live with Him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, He cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over Him. The death He died, He died to sin once for all. The life He lives, He lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer the parts of your body to sin as ins- as instruments of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. And offer the parts of your body to Him as instruments of righteousness. For sin shall not be your master, because you are not under law, but under grace. The text this afternoon is Romans 12, verses 1-2. through 2 it would be good for us to also read chapter 11, verses 31 through 36, the doxology. Keeping in mind that the text is Romans 12, verses 1 through 2. 11, verse 33, Paul begins, Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable is judgment and His paths beyond tracing out! Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been His counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay Him? For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be the glory forever. Amen. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good, pleasing, and perfect will. Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, what do you think of when someone uses the word or mentions worship? What does that word mean to you? Do you imagine simply what we do here on Sunday? After all, we heard the call to worship. We... We worship God, we say, with our, our songs and with our gifts, and it's true, the worship service here, what we do on Sunday is very important to our life as Christians, but is that all? Can we say that one what we do here is worship and that what we do when we leave this building is something else? Can we do what many people encourage us to do today, and that is leave Religion to one part of the light, your life. And then when you go to work or school, put it away and just live like everyone else does. What is worship? What does it mean to the way we live our lives? Well, the message of Romans chapter 12 is that worship is what we do every day. All of our life and everything we are, our whole being, ought to be offered to God in worship. And so what we do here on Sunday is worship But so is what we do when we leave this building, whenever we live for God. And that's the message of Romans 12. And so the theme of the sermon this afternoon is in their new life with Christ, Christians are exhorted to give their lives to God in worship. And we'll see, firstly, that this worship requires sacrifice. Secondly, we'll see that this worship requires transformation. So first, our worship as Christians requires sacrifice. Well, the Apostle Paul begins chapter 12 with the word, therefore. He says, therefore, I urge you in light of God's mercy. It's been suggested by many teachers, many professors, that whenever you see the word in Paul's letters, the word, therefore, you've got to ask yourself, what's the therefore, therefore? And they say that because they want us to realize that when Paul uses the word, that little word, therefore, he's, he's connecting what he's saying that's coming to what he has just said before. And it's important to get the transition. The transition is that verse the, the, when chapter 11 ends, that's uh, Paul explaining our salvation, describing it for us. And then chapter 12 begins a new section in his letter. Chapter 12 begins the section about what that means for us, the way we live, the way we behave for our lives as Christians. And so many people say this is chapter 12 is the imperative that, that flows out of the indicative, the command that comes from the explanation. And Paul does that every time. Whenever he gives a command, he bases it on something that God has done for us. And he does that here too. What has God done for us? Paul had just sung almost a a doxology. We read it together in chapter 11 where he praises God for His mercy. He says, Oh, the the depths of the riches and the wisdom and, and knowledge of God. How unsearchable His judgments. Who can understand God's judgments? How does He deal with us as His own people? What mercy. In fact, all of chapters 1-11 through 11 in, the, in the letter to the Romans is all about God's mercy. What's the basic message of Romans is that it doesn't matter whether you're a Jew or a Gentile. All have sinned. All have fallen short of the, the glory of God. And all receive salvation because of God's mercy. All of us. So Paul presents us the gospel message that people who were disobedient received salvation because of God's mercy. And no wonder his chapter 11 overflows like this in a hymn of praise to God. How merciful he is. Who can understand his mercy? Who can understand his salvation? And so we also, as we reflect on our own Christian lives, we need to understand that too. We, that the way we live as Christians, is something we do as a a response to God's mercy. And so in the the time of the Reformation, for example, and even during the the time that the um, canons of Dort were written, there were Christians and, and people in the church that said, we cannot teach people this message about God's mercy, because if we do, then people will just do whatever they want. We've got to scare people into obeying God. If we don't, they're not going to listen to us. And that was the, the fear about of, of the gospel of God's mercy. But Paul knows that that's not what happens to, to people who are really convicted by the gospel. Those who receive the gospel do not become lazy when they hear about God's mercy. The opposite happens. When people who are, who really receive the gospel hear this message of God's mercy, it, it incites them, it, it motivates them to live for God, to, to show their thankfulness. So Paul knows that the best motivation for a godly life is to tell God's people about his mercy. And that's what he does in, in chapters one through 11 of Romans. And now he comes. Therefore, because of God's mercy, how should we live? What do we do? as God's people. And what's His exhortation? What does He tell us to do? Well, the answer is nothing short of you give God everything. You give God everything. He says you need to offer your bodies as living sacrifices of thankfulness to God. And what does that mean? What does it mean to give your bodies as sacrifices? The word the sacrifice has a few different meanings today. So for example, if you watch sports, the announcer will say that the the athlete has sacrificed his body. If he, if he goes for the play and he hurts himself in so doing, he doesn't care about what happens to his body. He just goes for it. Or, for example, if you help someone on a Saturday, you have sacrificed your time to help a friend. And that's kind of how we use the word today. A lot of people use the word like that today. And furthest from our minds is the, the sacrifice that's offered in the Old Testament. That's a sacrifice that's considered disgusting by people today. Have you ever tried to explain to a, uh, an unbeliever why God requires animals to die in the Old Testament? Why does He want their blood? They find it gross. And it's hard for us to understand sometimes too because we're not used to it. It doesn't always make sense to us. What is it with these Old Testament sacrifices? Well, that's what Paul is talking about. That's what he's hooking into in this chapter about living sacrifices. That The sacrifice where the the, the bull or the goat would be cut open, his, his blood spilled on the ground or sprinkled on the altar... And the fat burned up on the altar. And Paul wants us to think especially of the thank offering in the Old Testament uh, sacrificial system. And the thank offering, the entire animal was burned on the altar. And when the Israelites saw the entire animal being burnt on this altar, they were reminded by God in the first place that their life was uh, the result of God's mercy. And that they actually deserved to die but God gave them life. And when they saw the burnt offering on the sacrifice, it reminded them that God wanted their entire life, that they needed to live their whole lives to God in thankfulness. It was called a thank offering when the entire animal was burnt up. Well, why would Paul talk about this Old Testament sacrifice in telling us about the way we live today? What's the point of that? Well, we need to understand something else about Old Testament sacrifices, and that's the, the way that they taught Israel about their holiness and about God's holiness. Holiness was an important theme in the Old Testament, as in the New. And holiness is being separated for God, consecrated to God. And so uh, the Lord told the, the Israelites in Leviticus chapter 20, you are to be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. And when he said that, he told them, I set you apart from the nations to be my own people. And that had implications. That mean that meant they couldn't live just like the other nations did. They couldn't act in ways that the, the people in Canaan did or the people in Egypt did. They had to be different. They had to live for God. And in the Old Testament, holiness was provided for through the Sacrifices. When Israel offered their sacrifices, that was how they could have fellowship with God. That's how they could be set apart for God. That's that was the Lord teaching them and reminding them about how it was possible for sinful people to live in the presence or before the face of God. And so that's how Paul is using this term in his letter to the Romans. And the apostle uses the word sacrifice to show you that you are now separated for God, set apart for Him. And the sacrifice teaches us about the necessity to live for God. We all know that it's not a reality, don't we? What Paul declares in, in Romans that because Jesus Christ died for our sins, that's the mercy part, Jesus Christ became the the sacrifice that, that shed his blood, that we might be set apart for God and consecrated to God. And as a result, we may be living sacrifices today. Jesus Christ made that possible for us. He made it possible for, for Paul to make this command in Romans chapter twelve. As living sacrifices, you are urged and exhorted to give your bodies to God. Or to consecrate or set apart your bodies for God, what does that mean? How do you how do you set apart your your body for God or consecrate your body for God? Well, that's why we read Romans chapter six. Paul explains it for us, verse eleven. Consecrating your hands for God is is turning from using your hands in ways that hurt people. Or, or for instruments of, of wickedness and using them instead as instruments of righteousness in ways that, that worship and serve God. And to emphasize to his readers that this was all of their life, he uses, uh, language that was, u- that usually was used by Israel to describe what would happen when people worship God in the temple. So the, the priest had to consecrate his body to enter the temple. And the instruments that were used in the temple had to be consecrated so that they might be used for holy things. And now Paul uses that language that was reserved for temple worship and he says, now you, this is your whole life. Not just when you go into the temple. Not just when you enter some sacred space and some sacred time. He's telling you that now, All your space and all your time is sacred. Everything you do because your body is sacred. Your body is set apart. Everything you do with your body is to be set apart for God in holiness. Paul emphasizes that by using temple language to describe life in general. And when he does, he's He's showing us that we don't need to have some special vocation to worship God. We don't need to go about some special business to worship God. And that means that you don't have to quit your jobs to worship God. It does, and it means that you, you don't have to come into a, a church service to worship God, even though those things are good. You don't have to do that to worship God. You don't have to join a short-term missions trip to worship God, even though it's good to do that. You don't have to to worship God. Everything you do, at work or at school, or wherever you are, if you do it in a way that that dedicates the 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 activity to God, you're worshiping Him. I had a conversation that with someone that highlights this attitude that we sometimes have in church that worship is reserved for certain times and places. We we're having a conversation about this kind of thing and he said, "I get it. I get that I have to work as a Christian. That means I got to make sure I do a good job. I get that." He even said sometimes he he gets it where he forgot to to do something and he gets home and he realizes, "No, I got to go back and I got to finish it properly." Because I'm a Christian, that's what Christian uh, workers do. But he said, "Is that really worship?" He didn't get that part. He said, "You know what? Like ministers get to do, they get to read the Bible every day. They get to uh, look into the songs that are going to be sung. Well, that's worship. They get to worship God every day." And I said, "You miss. You're missing the point. And what a minister does, that's worship. That's true. But so is what you did." When you went and made sure that you did a good job for the sake of your God, you went back and did a good job. That's worship too. So everything that we do for God as His people, set apart for Him, consecrated for Him, that's worship. Not only that, that's what God requires of you. He requires that you give everything to Him in worship. And so some people might be inclined to ask, isn't that a bit much? Doesn't that go a bit far? Everything I do, no matter where I am, whatever I'm doing, is worship. Seems a bit much. Seems a bit fanatic. You know, we get used to the idea that worship belongs to certain times and certain places. We get used to the idea that Worship is a personal experience between me and my God. Something I do when I need it, when I'm sad or when I'm lonely or when I feel like I need God to help me with something. You always find this attitude or you often find this attitude at weddings. A wedding ceremony is often so wonderfully focused on the Word of God and what God's Word says about marriage and life together as a husband and a wife. And what a beautiful unity that is. And We are so excited about what God says about marriage. And then we go to the reception and we, we pray for the meal. And afterwards, it seems like it doesn't really matter what God says about marriage anymore and and speaker after speaker comes up and then makes disparaging jokes about the bride and the groom and about marriage and about about how boring it's going to be when they're old. And, and it seems like God's Word has nothing to say anymore about this marriage. So we seem to do that at weddings, don't we? Where we, we reserve the worship of God to the ceremony when it's over. We're done with that part. And now we go on to having fun with each other. And so Paul says, when he tells us that we need to offer everything to God in worship, he says, this is your spiritual act of worship. And what does that mean? To understand what that means, we need to go back to the first century. We need to go back to the time when this word was used in its context. To understand what Paul is hooking into the word he uses is often sometime, or is sometimes translated as reasonable. And so you might know the expression, this is your reasonable service, your reasonable worship. And why is that a possible translation of this expression? Because Paul is hooking into a discussion among the philosophers of his day where they debated the difference between superstitious worship and and worship that belonged to the gods, and this was a real problem in first-century Roman Roman world, where people believed that they had to hang, uh, for example, uh, uh, birds' feet from their from their uh, door frames, and that if they did, then the gods would be with them in that house. And the philosophers and the the religious leaders said, "That's a superstition. The gods don't require that of us. It's not part of our reasonable worship." It's not part of our spiritual worship. That's something that someone else made up. It doesn't belong to proper, reasonable worship. And so Paul hooks into this. He says that's the same with worship of our God. There's a difference between unreasonable worship, worship that God does not ask for or require, and worship that is reasonable, that God does ask for. And when he, when he talks about worship like this, he's saying, The only appropriate response to God's worship is to give everything. What's the force of his argument? Look at what God did for you. Look at the the depth of His mercy. How inappropriate to give Him only some worship sometimes. How inappropriate to take the life He's given you in His mercy and, and to offer it to someone else. Inappropriate the only appropriate response to God's mercy is to give your whole self to Him in worship. That's the point. So we need to ask ourselves, what does that look like in your life today? How am I worshiping God in the way I treat my friends, in the way I interact with my friends, in the way I live with my family, in the way I treat my neighbors. How am I worshiping God in all of those activities at home, at work, or at school? Well, if our worship will be a total consecration of our lives to God, if we're going to do that, if we're going to actually worship God at home, worship God at work, worship God at school, then our lives require transformation. And that's because we all accept that we don't actually do this. We don't actually give our whole lives to God in worship. It's not as if anyone of us here can say, yes, I do that. I'm done. I always worship God with everything I do. All the time. No way. No one says that. And that's why Paul says you need to be transformed if you're going to live this life. And Paul says that our transformation has two parts. The first is negative. The first is don't conform to the patterns of this world. And then the second is that we need to be transformed by the renewal of our mind. And so we'll look at the first uh, negative side first. Do not be transformed to the pattern of this world. And here again is a term that Paul is using. He uses it often a term that we need to understand if we're going to get what Paul is saying. When he talks about the pattern of this world, what does he mean? Well, in the first place, we might go back to Romans chapter 1 and hear Paul explain for us the way this world lives. What does he say? He says that we live among a people that is darkened in its understanding, that has become evil, greedy, malicious, deceitful, Haters of God. He continues. His list goes on. He says Christians aren't like that. They don't live like that. And what is Paul saying? The term that he uses is sometimes also translated this age. And what he wants us to know is that this is an age that lives according to a certain pattern. A time. But Paul has often explained for us a future time, a time when all of God's people will live in His kingdom in fullness and in glory. That time is coming. But the gospel message came to us while we were still in this age and in this world. And so Paul is telling you, even though you live in this time, in this age, in this world, You've got to start living as if you already live in that new time, in that new kingdom. Live it now, today. When you do, you are going to be completely different from the people around you. They live according to certain principles and guidelines that you do not share with them. Because you, you live according to the, the principles and the, the patterns that belong to the kingdom of Christ. You do that now while being uh, citizens of the country you live in now and that's hard to do it was hard for the early Romans because they had to go to work with these people people who used to see them go to the temples people who used to see them uh, praying to the gods of their of their world and now they had to stop. And it's hard for us today because people will see us doing things like going to church every Sunday. They'll see us doing things and behaving in certain ways that seem weird, silly, unreasonable. The way they, the way we live and interact with each other, they don't understand it. Your neighbors might think you're weird if you don't constantly want more stuff and more money. They'll think you're weird if you don't measure your worth by what you have, or by the kinds of promotions you get at work. They'll think you're weird if you're, if you're a teenager and you, and you want to remain sexually pure. They're gonna think you're weird and they're gonna make fun of you. They don't understand it. They don't get what you're doing, how you're living, because they don't see the, the future kingdom, the kingdom of Christ. They don't understand the pattern of life that you have been given. So it's hard to be different. We live in this world. We're affected by this world. We're affected by this culture. And this culture and this world wants us to be like them. They want us to be the same. And the sin in our own lives makes us want to be the same as them too. We resist what God is doing in our lives And it's because of sin in this world and in your own life, in our lives as God's people, that we all need transformation. You need to be transformed because the truth is you don't give your life to God totally now. You use your body to hurt your friends. You use your hands to hurt your friends. You resist the righteousness and love of God and it's because of the sin and in, in, in your life that you need transformation. And notice that Paul is not saying that transformation is a once-in-a-lifetime experience. If you believe that, if you and take that attitude, you're going to be quickly discouraged because you're going to know that you you haven't. It didn't happen over overnight. You you're going to wake up one day and say, "No, I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm not going to." to be hurtful to people anymore. And the next day, you did it again. And that's discouraging. But Paul isn't saying that this is going to happen overnight, that you're going to wake up one day and and realize what what it means to be a Christian, and that's it, you're done. Your transformation is over. And Paul doesn't say, Congratulations, Romans, on your transformation, He doesn't. He tells them to be transformed. He's he's imagining a continual process. A process He wrote about Himself, for Himself in Philippians. And when He wrote to the Philippians, he He described that life in Christ. And He said, not that I have already obtained all of this. He's talking about Himself. And He says, not that I've already been made perfect, but I press on. To take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. And so Paul is imagining and telling us about a transformation process in which Jesus Christ takes hold of us and changes us. And we know that this is sometimes a very exciting process. It is very exciting to think about how you were in the in the past years and, and to realize the kinds of things you do today and, and realize that you never would have been able to do it. If the Spirit of Christ wasn't at work in you, and it's exciting, but it's also a discouraging process because we all have to admit that even when we have one foot in the the new age, in the Kingdom of Christ, we also have one foot in the old age, in the pattern of this world. So it's sometimes a discouraging process. Someone tries to do a good thing, for example, by, by providing for his family. This happens so often. And so he's begun by dedicating the works of his hands to, to worshiping God. He wants to do good. But when he looks back on the, the year, he realizes that he worked every day And he always missed supper. And he always—he was never there for his family. He was hardly ever home. His kids hardly saw him. His wife hardly saw him. And he looks back and he realizes that, yes, he got the promotion that he wanted that paid more. But he had to step on the backs of everyone to get there. And he realizes that what began as a dedication to God and worship ended as a dedication to his own greed. Dedication to sin. Frustrating. A frustrating process to look back and realize that you did not do what you set out to do. And so the the process might sometimes be discouraging and frustrating, but there's another thing that, that the Apostle Paul wants us all to understand about this transformation If we look closely at the command, we can see it. He says, be transformed. How is that possible? How can He command us to do something that will be done to us? To be transformed. You might expect Him to say, transform yourselves. But He doesn't. He says, be transformed. How does that work? Well, we need to see from this command that the Apostle Paul does not expect us to do this on our own. This is not something that we achieve on our own. And to see what Paul means, we need only go back to this, to chapter eight of this letter, where he explains for us and describes for us the transformation process. How does it work? How does it happen? Romans chapter eight, he says, you, however, are not controlled by the sinful nature, but by the spirit. If the spirit lives in you, Continues, if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit. How do we transform ourselves? Or how do we become transformed? In a way that we will be able to offer our bodies to God in worship? Paul says, that same Holy Spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead is in you, is at work in you. And if the Spirit that gave Christ life from the dead is at work in you, what will happen to you? What kind of life will you be given? So Paul is encouraging us again that we are transformed by this Spirit of Christ in us. That's how it happens. It's not something we have to do ourselves. It's something that, that God is doing in us. Well, how will this transformation take place? What happens? How does the Holy Spirit work in us, transforming us? How does Christ take hold of our lives and, and transform us? Paul says it's by the renewal of your mind. And the importance of the mind is often debated today. Is Christianity an intellectual exercise? Is it a matter of the heart? What is our faith? What's the seat of our faith? Where does it live? That's what people want to know today. Very exact definitions they want to give. Well, Paul is saying that misses the point entirely. Faith is something that we do with our whole selves, our minds, our bodies. He's already talked about our bodies. Now he goes and he talks about our minds. And does he need an intellectual exercise? Not really. How do we know what Paul means? If we go back again, Romans 1, in the context of this letter, Paul describes what happens to the mind of someone who does not receive the Gospel. Someone who does not know God. His mind is darkened. He does not see who God is. He does not glorify God, even though he should. He doesn't know who he is either. He doesn't know that someone who's darkened does not know that he is uh, created by God and ought to worship his Creator. He's darkened in his understanding so that he commits sins against God. He doesn't know how to live. And that's what Paul is describing here by the renewal of our minds. That's something that changes. We are not darkened in our understanding. We are enlightened by the Spirit. When we're enlightened by the Spirit, it doesn't mean that we're going to be uh, really smart and that's why we're Christians. It means that we get something that other people don't see because of the darkness. God shines the light of the Gospel into our hearts and into our lives. So now we can see who God is. Now we can see who we are because of God. That's the transformation that has to happen. The enlightenment that has to happen. That's what we pray for before we read the Bible every Sunday. We ask God to give us the light of His Spirit so that we can see what He's talking about in His Word. Not intellectually, but so that we receive it in faith. We experience what God is doing in the world and in our lives Sometimes you might struggle with your mind. You don't always know what to do in every situation. You don't always notice the sin that leads you astray. You know you need to be transformed by the renewal of your mind. But how? How does this take place? How does the Spirit work in our lives today? The best place to start is to read God's will in the Bible. Read about what God is doing in this world in His Word. Read about what God is doing in your life in the Bible. That's the best place to start. The the Lord promises us that His Holy Spirit will work through you by His Word. Another thing to do is to pray. The Lord promises that those who ask for wisdom, those who ask for enlightenment, will be given it. God wants you to see Him for who He is. God wants you to see what He's doing in your life. If you ask Him, He will show you. Prayer is important to transformation. So when we read and pray, we also recognize that this is something that the Lord our God has to do in us. We cannot do it ourselves. It's a confession of dependence on the Lord our God. And when we do that, when we read uh, God's Word together and we pray and, and the Holy Spirit works in our lives and transforms us like that, and the Bible says in Romans 12, verse 2, it says that then you will be able to discern the will of God. And so often we treat our faith as if it's a checklist. We wait for someone to tell us what to do. It's all about uh, the elders or our parents or someone to tell you what to do and we, we try to get away maybe with as much as we can. Is that how we think about our faith? The Apostle Paul says your faith isn't like that. Neither does it mean that you are somehow an ignorant person who needs to take a leap of faith. That's what people are saying about Christians today. They've got to stop using information and start using their faith, and that's the only way they can come to their Christian conclusions. That's not true either. What happens when the Holy Spirit is, is transforming your mind is that you receive enlightenment. You don't always know what to do in every situation, but you know the way. The Lord shows you the way to go. He he gives you enlightenment. He transforms your mind. So the exhortation to live for God involves a warning. The Apostle Paul warns us about false worship and about the way this present age will try to uh, manipulate us, confuse us into ignoring God's Word and God's salvation. And that means we've got to challenge ourselves. Challenge each other so that you don't take the life that God gave you and and offer it to someone else. But Romans 12, verses 1 and 2 also give us this message of great comfort. It's a comfort to those who have faith in Jesus Christ because it's all based on what God has done and what God is doing and what God will do in your life. The Apostle Paul knows that this is the time of the Kingdom of Christ. He knows that it is upon us. And he knows that that's going to make a difference in the way we live. And so he's confident. He's convinced that the Spirit of Christ is here and is bringing renewal. He's convinced that those who live with God will experience that renewal. The courage to stand up and say no to the world to resist those who will try to weaken your resolve and your dedication to God. And the promise is that you will experience this transformation. And when you do, you will be ready. You will be willing from now on to live for your God. Amen.